0: You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems hosted by Shonda Smith Baker. So school just started this week, or for some of you, a week or two ago. Over the last few years, we spoke with some leaders in education, and we'd like to highlight them here. Our first clip is from Lisa Pavalek principal at Lucy Craft Laney Community School in North Minneapolis. Listen in as Shonda and Lisa discuss the challenge of schools meeting the needs of students and families. Enjoy the show.
1: We talked about sort of your time at Laney and just watching how things have changed
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and centering Youth Voice and including them and what's happening in a building is really powerful, right? Like I can feel myself like tearing up a little bit. Just Me too. About I know I'm just like, oh man, I need to wipe a tear. Sorry, I'm like dropping stuff. Because I'm like, you know, to, to think about being a young person who, you know, part of feeling valued is, is about people hearing you. Like, you know, you're not part of a herd. You're not part of a, there's something that's just so powerful about that. And I think sometimes, my read on it is that there are places that think it's too disruptive we can't meet the needs right that's how i i read it that we can't meet all the individual demands right like that are happening in classrooms and you know again you are dealing with these children who are emotionally being impacted by what's happening they have families that are complicated. They have families that have a lot to offer, but they're coming to the school with some of the same challenges. And so do you feel like your school is equipped to meet? Are you feeling the same demands of all the other schools and like ill-equipped to meet the needs of kids or in families or?
2: I see it a little bit differently. Shonda rhymes with Honda. I believe that as as institutions, school institutions, we are one of many pillars of the community. So school is one place and space, church is another place and space, family is another place and space, neighbors, community centers are another place and space, and I I don't believe that it is my or our responsibility to meet every need. I believe it is my and our responsibility to create a safe, warm, welcoming place where every need is acknowledged. And then to help, to help connect and to, and to walk alongside and truly be a family and be part of the village that raises. But I think that for, for a school to take on every need in some ways is prideful. And it's, and it's also, I don't know if paternalistic is the right word, but who am I to meet every need we already have and you already have everything you need. It's my job to create that place and that space mm-hmm. so that all of us can come together and be the village.
1: Just even saying that we we have a responsibility to acknowledge the needs, how do you acknowledge the needs? Like, what does that look like?
2: Something little, I think something you'll hear often is, you know, the child who comes in and um, there hasn't been time to wash clothes at home we have a washer and dryer. We have some, some changes so we can meet that need in the moment, but then we can also um, check in with the family. Like, all right, is this a need in the moment? Is there, is there someone or some service we can connect you with so that that can be taken off of your plate? You know, so we can meet some of those needs, but acknowledging those emotional and and traumatic events just just like what we were talking about with the children coming out and doing a peace rally did we take care of that need hmm. is the violence gone on the north side are the children no longer experiencing trauma no but we acknowledged it and we created that that space for it to come out mm-hmm. in a way
1: yep i get it what about the parents because you know parents like we can be we can be fierce <laughs>
2: you can't and that's what i love about parents because that's—I mean—these are your babies. Think about what other profession, other than maybe maybe the medical profession, do we have the honor of taking care of families' most precious gifts? Mm-hmm. And you know, I mentioned earlier, my children, my children, um, Sundara and Naya were were Laney babies, but I'm not the only one. And counted up this year, we had 17 students whose whose parents are Lucy Laney employees. And oh. we have some, we have some staff who were staff first and became parents, like myself. And then we have some staff who were parents first and became staff. And so we we say that we are a family. The beauty of having so many of us who are parents and and staff, either present or or former, it forces us to do so because you can't have a conversation about laney parents or laney kids with the staff without having a lady parent in the room. And so yes, parents are fierce, but so am I, so are we. We, we have the same goal and that's for your child to thrive and yeah. for your child to have the best possible school day experience that they can have. And so I see I see parents as partners, not adversaries, even yeah. when we don't agree, because our ultimate goal is the same for the children.
1: Yeah. So is is there a high level of parent engagement at the school?
2: I believe so. Yes.
1: Yeah. Have you had to adjust what that looks like
2: there? Mm -hmm. We've had to rethink as a staff and we spent a couple of years thinking very deeply because, you know, traditionally in the school system, parent engagement looks like you coming in during the school day to help with something or you as the parent coming in in the evening or you as the parent reaching out to me and, that's not always the case. You know, I think about my own self as a parent. Once my children were not if my children at elementary weren't at Laney, I would have been at Laney during all the times that that mm-hmm. parents were supposed to come to the school and when they they got to Franklin I was not able to be there. And so we've we're very creative. We do home visits to go meet families every August. We divide up into groups and then we take a day. We get our new t-shirts. For the for the fall, and we go visit every family on the same day, and and just welcome them to the new school year. For conferences, we've challenged ourselves to to not think of it just as this one day or this one evening, but we take the whole month and meet with families in any way that we possibly can. And we have about eighty percent participation, which wow. is
1: huge. Eighty percent. I would Definitely. participate if someone did that. <laughs>
2: Right, like I can meet with be you better any better. morning at seven thirty, any afternoon at three fifteen. I can come to your job. You can come to me. You know, it's it's just not reasonable.
0: And back of April this year, we had the opportunity to interview Kareem Farah, an educator and co-founder of the Modern Classrooms Project. We met with Kareem to discuss about technology in the modern classroom and how his organization are not only helping students but training teachers through a mentorship program.
1: There's something around sort of the advancements that you made with the modern classroom that uses technology as support in delivering and then kind of the the world that we're living in now and so maybe two different questions one is like what is the opportunity of the moment in terms of 21st century learning. And I guess the second is really just diving a little bit more into the modern classrooms sort of like concretely so that our listeners understand exactly what it is that you're doing.
3: Yeah. Well, I actually think it might help if I explain the model and then how we think it's an opportunity, if that's okay. Um, So the core idea is simple. And the best way I can describe the modern classrooms project is I'll never forget one of the students that I'm still to this day. I text her almost every day. I remember watching her come into one of my classrooms when I was still teaching traditionally. And I'm standing at the front of the room and when the bell rings, like every teacher who teaches traditionally is usually like, all right, show time. Like we need to get everyone in order and then we've got to start the lesson. And I remember watching this student walk into my classroom and she clearly was experiencing an enormous amount of distress, enormous amount of distress. Uh, and I Later found out it was traumatic. And I remember finding her distress to be A frustrating thing because I wanted to maintain control and it was at that moment in time where I realized my students trauma was bothering me. That I had to deeply rethink classroom instruction, because if my desire to control turns me into an educator that doesn't actually want to engage deeply in the trauma and struggles that my kids are facing then i'm doing something terribly wrong as an educator. So from there, we thought innovatively about what are the core structures and traditional practices that don't work. So the first step was the lecture. The lecture is this inherently inequitable exercise where if you're not there and you miss it, this live information disappears it's also a really inefficient use of a teacher's class time like why am i standing at the front of the room and sharing a mass amount of information when i could be scaling this in a more effective way and using my time effectively and i always talk about it as a bottleneck from the business perspective like bottlenecks are terrible right they create like incredible inefficiency that's what a lecture was so in our model educators eliminate lectures by building their own instructional videos and this is a core element and a differentiator We train teachers to actually be their own instructional video creators because they're personal, they're creative, and they can infuse whatever curriculum is built at the school or the district. So we built our own instructional videos. From there, that unleashed the capacity to let students work at their own pace. The belief that Some students are on Lesson 2 while others are on Lesson 3 or while others are on Lesson 4. So instead of relying on live delivery information, it's all on a learning management system like a Google Classroom or a Canvas so kids can actually work at their own pace within each unit of study. And that unleashed the final frontier, the final goal, which is that we actually measure students based on mastery. So a student does not go to lesson two to lesson three because it's Tuesday and not Monday, but instead because they've actually shown mastery. And you can't do that unless you have self-pacing, right? Without an element of self-pacing, how do I keep some kids on one lesson without them moving forward to the next one? So that's the model. We train teachers through a free course that has 22,000 educators in it and a virtual mentorship program, which is how we partner with schools and districts. And we have our big summer institute coming. Now with COVID, this was so fascinating. COVID broke um, and started to close schools. And all of our teachers who were already doing our model said, "Um, Kareem, we're fine. We know exactly what to do. We can pivot to the remote space, the hybrid space. Our model works really well. Um, Our colleagues don't know what to do. Um, Can you help us? So we built a really strong free online course And that's when 22,000 educators joined in. And what we realized was um, educators had a deep demand for our approach and some of the tools and resources. But what it also spoke to was the fact that over the course of the last 10 months, educators have never been this good at education technology. For years, there was technology in the buildings, there were tools and resources. There weren't great frameworks for how educators could use them which means there was real implementation gap issue like some educators would be good at technology some wouldn't so the first opportunity here is that educators are actually really strong at some really powerful tools they weren't before because they've been leveraging them throughout the last 10 months or so the second thing is folks started to realize during COVID-19 how ineffective sort of your traditional lecture style approach to teaching was because they had to execute it in one of the most uninspiring environments over something like a Zoom call. We can all imagine how boring and dry it is to sit on a 45 minute Zoom call where your teacher is just gonna share all this information from start to finish. So you saw two things happen. You've got educators now getting significantly more fluent in all the powerful tools that exist and also deciding which ones are actually really bad and useless and which ones are really powerful and actually can improve student learning, which is an important exercise. There's a lot of bad tech out there. There's a lot of great tech out there, but teachers have now been so deeply immersed in it, they can understand the difference at scale. The second piece is understanding the value of what we call asynchronous versus synchronous instruction. The value of that work time we give to students where they're in the driver's seat, where they're not compliantly listening to live lectures and the need for when you do bring the whole group together. So now educators are starting to think, Wait a minute, I can think about time in teaching and learning differently. It doesn't need to be me at the front of the room delivering information. And then finally, an an enormous need, a need that existed before, but wasn't actually addressed all that effectively, which is the diversity of academic and social emotional needs of students. This has always been the case, right? We've always known this, that a fourth grader in one community can look very different than a fourth grader in another community, and those two students can walk into the same classroom and have very different needs. COVID-19 totally exacerbated this, right? Where you have kids who literally can't make it to the lecture because of access issues and simultaneously other kids thriving in the remote and hybrid learning environment. And that built this intense desire to say, how do I meet this needs of a student who lost a family member and doesn't have access and simultaneously meet the needs of someone who is actually thriving? And that requires a sort of more novel, personalized approach to supporting students. So at the Modern Classrooms Project, what we're basically seeing is teachers have never been more prepared to think innovatively about teaching and learning, they've never been better skilled at education technology, and there's never been a greater need for innovation at the classroom level to meet the diversity of learning levels and social emotional needs. So I do think this is an opportunity for education to really accelerate and get much stronger, particularly in our ability to be responsive to the needs of kids and communities. And I'm excited about that. It's, it's frankly a silver lining of this extremely challenging time. And the way that the
1: modern classroom works is that teachers sign up to become part of that network and get access and tools. You don't focus on a district signing up. Is that right?
3: So what we do is teachers can sign up individually from across the country and the world. We're actually in 110 countries and 50 states, which is exciting. They can do that in the free course or the paid experience, which is basically $500 a teacher to get our full training experience. The majority of teachers we train through the paid experience do come through school and district contracts or foundations and funders funding educators in a local community. So if you're in San Francisco and a funder says, I want 100 teachers to go through the modern classrooms program in San Francisco, here's funding for that, go recruit the educators and take them through that journey, we say great. The other way is schools and districts say, hey, we'd like to infuse the modern classroom practices in our community, but what we say is we're an opt-in model, so we will only train the teachers who want to be trained. So if a school district comes to us and says, we want teachers trained, we say, wonderful, we're happy to support you. Get us on the calendar in front of your teachers. We'll present to them. They'll tell us if they want to be a part of the program, and then you pay for all the teachers who want to be a part of it. So we have about 35 school and district partnerships. It's only accelerating. We're going to train about 1,000 teachers this summer. And some of them are coming through philanthropy-funded experiences, where a philanthropist is funding a group of teachers in a region or in the country. And then the majority are schools and districts who are seeking our support and infusing innovative teaching and learning. And we say, great, we just need to train the teachers who want to be a part of it, because we believe in honoring sort of the customization and needs of educators. And that's the approach we take. So it's a virtual mentorship program is the way that we train teachers in our paid programming where educators are paired with a mentor. That mentor does the model already and get one-on-one support and guidance as they're building the instructional materials they need to implement the model in their classroom.
0: Up next, we have Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, the award-winning author, anti-racist scholar, professor, and much, much more. We spoke about the role of the education system has in debunking or addressing race and racism along with the understanding of the historical context.
1: What role do you think our educational system has, right, in terms of debunking um, or addressing sort of these issues of race and racism and really understanding better the historical context?
4: I mean, if you look at the two most... uh, destructive and murderous white supremacist, domestic terrorist of of the last five years. Uh, of course, Kyle Wittenhouse and the very young white uh man who who shot up those nine people who were who were praying, you know, in a Charleston search, They were both extremely young. They were both only years out of high school, you know, who knows what they were taught or what they were more so not taught in their high schools. Who knows if they would have had a course on African-American history, if, if they would have had a section uh, on, on racism, uh, what type of impact that would have had in their lives. But, but we have to systematically, you know, teach our young people like we're doing our adults that the problem aren't those other people because if they're taught that the problem are those other people or they're not taught that the problem is not those other people then what do you think they're going to grow up believing and and when they have you know when they have AR15s and AK47s and they have a crisis what do you think they're going to end up doing we're literally by not teaching our children to be anti-racist we are radicalizing young white men all over this country.
0: Back in January of 2021, we interviewed Dr. Christopher Emden, an associate professor of science education at Teachers College in Columbia University and an author of a New York Times bestseller. Shonda and Dr. Emden spoke with us about young people leaving for school away from their community and the seven rights that all students should have in a classroom.
1: So I think about the young people that uh, envision going off to school away from their community Mm -hmm. and their families say, just get just go get your generals at the local community college, because, you know, we just want to make sure you're safe. That's too far away. You're going to be by yourself like you're going to come back and not you're not going to be like us no more.
5: Mm. You know, it's, it's trauma, man. Trauma gets manifested in various ways. Listen. No adult shall rob young person of the opportunity to activate their imagination. If your vision sees you beyond the local space, our job is to equip them with the tools to be successful in those space, concurrently with a preparedness for what's to come. I think part of the challenge is this: like, you know, a lot of our babies dream of a, going away, but they have this false notion of what going away looks like. And they don't have folks in their circle to make them aware of what they should be prepared for, like the traps. Like sometimes you go away. It's a setup. For example, young folks go away to school, get a credit card. Them cats catch Predators right on campus, particularly for black and brown bodies, where we know assault on our finances is a, a chief piece of how we can never get fun under this. Like, you know, your mama got a bill and named you for. So these are things that our communities are dealing with. You go, you get your no one told you this. right? So you go, you get your credit card. You run up your credit card. You're ruining your credit. Then. You could have got a job. You're like, nah, I ain't going to get this, this job on campus. I'm going to get this. Um, I'm going to just take out this loan because they're going to take care of that. Them cats want their loan money back. You go into the space. You have imposter syndrome. You feel like, yo, I'm prepared for this. But now your self-doubt inhibits you from being successful in the school. You're like, who can I hang out with? I'm just going to do social clubs. You get too social. So like they're, they're, the dream of going away is a beautiful dream if you're prepared for what the landscape is of where you're dreaming to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that we have to inform young folks. Now, on the other hand, I'm gonna say something that I don't know if you're gonna agree with, sis, but I'm gonna say it. If I stay local and I got the and I got the playbook, I could also change the game. Like, look, I go to I go to community college, for example. I ball out or a smash it because it's local, it's close. Now you I'm not close, so I could be close to my folks at home. I am closed because I'm playing the long game. The long game is I stay at the crib. I can stay with my moms in them. I ain't got to get much tuition. The tuition here is dumb low, work, pay that off, no student loans. I'll smash this out for these two years and get this associates. They paying for my bachelor's. Boom. I go a little further away for these bachelor's. Now the Ivy League is calling me to pay for my master's. So it's like, my thing is that let's not, it's important for us to tell young folks that there are multiple options. But if you if you get the playbook for both, you can find success rather than romanticize one over the other. And then you end up broken anyway.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with you. And and I think I think my point was more to the the family members that are like reigning on the dream. Right. Like like not figuring out in partnership with their young person how we can get you there and get you prepared but they're afraid of what going away would mean to their relationship, right? Like that imposter syndrome of like, they're going to go away and get a degree and I don't have one. And all of that sort of trauma that shows up was really more my point because I'm sitting right now on the North side of Minneapolis. I'm I'm sitting about eight blocks from where I grew up. My husband is three blocks from where he grew up. We both went to school right in the neighborhood. So I think that, you know, and I think that's the other thing is that, you know, I'm from... Five five four eleven, the zip code that gets most discussed in terms of problems to solve and schools to fix, and and students to prepare. And um, there are so many people from this neighborhood that are doing amazing things, Gosh. including Prince. <laughs> like Gosh. Prince, was like he practiced like across the street from my house, and and Andre Simone, and a lot of bright brilliance and community brilliance that have that have um, risen from the concrete, if you will, and um i just think that we have we have collectively described our neighborhoods as, as hopeless and that we need some charitable action to come in to like fix it
5: and all we need is ourselves and all we need is a articulation of the stories of those who've been successful and like you know when you talk when you talk about you and you talk about your husband like i like this is one of my quotes that that resounded with folks but it's a to me it's like a mantra is that education is not is not a tool for leaving your neighborhood, right? Like education is about being able to get the information to help to improve it. Like it's not a way out. And if everybody's making their way out the hood, who gonna going prove the hood? Matter of fact, and you going through this right now, if everybody's making their way out the hood, all it does is lessen the value so other folks come buy it. Now you sitting around like, yo, how the hell did they became my neighbor? And they bought the whole thing out. And so it's about reinvesting in our communities and reinvesting our communities, not just in like sort of financial sector or real estate, but reinvesting in the young folks to say, "Yo, get what you get" to come back and make this better, so that we could all live better collectively. And that you know, it's you know, it's the it's the Afro-centric idea of lift as you climb. At the end of the day, those premises don't lose us. Like Sankofa is real, and if we learn Sankofa in fourth grade, we think of ourselves differently.
1: Yeah, if if so, you know, so now we're going to talk about schools a little bit, and we yeah. talked to we've talked about it. But you have, um, you know, I was I was stalking your Twitter. <laughs> a little bit. And so, you, uh, someone talked to you about hearing your seven rights that all students should have in a classroom um, yeah. as as something that was completely brilliant. And I'm wondering if you might be willing to share that with us. Yeah, man.
5: Look, the premise behind those rights, these are not rights that Chris Emden made up, right? These are, and here's the thing I want everybody to understand, and particularly for those who are listening who may be from the academic community there's nothing that you are creating. There's nothing that you're making that's gonna save black and brown bodies that does not exist in the imaginations, the hearts and souls of those populations already. Period. Let me add a T to the period. You know what I mean? Like You know what I mean? Like, and and I and so if anyone hears something from me that they feel is a jewel, it's because I got that from the hood. And 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 I have the platform to articulate what I've heard in the hood or heard in the world. And so I have a framework that's a little complex um, and it's ever evolving, because everything is always evolving, that includes these seven C's of a concept I call reality pedagogy that match up with the seven rights of the body, as even articulated in Buddhist tradition. Um, and the merging of the seven C's of reality pedagogy and the seven rights of the body restores rights to young folks and communities that then folds into practices that should be implemented in classrooms. The seven C's of reality pedagogy are co-generative dialogues, conversations that educators must be having with young folks, having with communities about how they're doing and meeting the needs of those communities. You cannot be teaching nobody if they can't tell you, like, nah, I ain't like that lesson. Um, This ain't working for me. So co-generating conversation with communities, with young folks, so they can share with us what their perspectives are, and so we can co-construct things to do to make the next experience better. Not the world better, not next year better, like tomorrow. So boom, y'all high-five about that lesson. Did I kill that? Was that trash? Did I hurt your feelings? Did you like it? Did you not? Word is how you felt? What are we going to do about it? We'll come up with something together. We both could do it. We'll do it tomorrow. Like an immediate feedback loop. So cognitive dialogues. co-teaching, recognizing that those who teach are not those who are credentialed alone. That those who teach are those who've been called to teach. And those who've been called to teach may not have a teaching license, may not have gone to college. But you hear them talk and give their sage wisdom and you understand that they've been called to teach. And so allow those who've been called to teach to teach the credentialed about how to teach. You know what I mean? So reaching out in that hood, in that community to understand who them folks are. There's that one cat on the block. He'd be there all night long because he hustling but he has an ability to connect the young folks in a way that nobody else understands. Do not write that person off. Do not identify that person as being the worst in the community. That person may be doing what they are doing because they ain't got no other options. But if you gave them the platform, not saving them, the platform to utilize their gift to help young folks be edified, they would do that. And so co-teaching is allowing the hood to teach us, allowing the babies to teach us about how to teach. Cosmopolitanism, creating and constructing community having schools feel like extensions of community. The extent to which a school is successful is the extent to which that school replicates the social structures of the community that school is embedded in. If the school is that place separate from, we're going to save them from that community. If they got the same language, the same discourse, the same spots that y'all hang out at, the, the teachers don't go to the same pizza shop the kids go, if there's a separateness about the institution that is not embedded in the social fabric and dynamic of the community, that school is... Useless. Yeah, I said it. It's useless. Now, this does not mean that you don't hold young folks to loftier goals. It doesn't mean that you don't open up possibilities, but you can do those things without being disparaging to the community where you're physically located. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that's cool Jen.
1: Imagine schools that aren't disparaging to the community of people they're trying to serve and the people that support the schools that are supposed to support the kids. That they're talking about them as though they're an asset and not a problem to solve. Can you imagine that? Yo, you know, I'm not even gonna get through
5: all these C's because if I did, like, cause you and I could just talk on that. And here's the yeah. thing: why does it take the activation of the radical imagination to do what is right to do? Like, sometimes my heart hurts that I have to sit at Columbia and talk about cosmopolitanism. Cosm- cosmopolitanism, as articulated through the frameworks of Kwame Apia as an extension of John Dewey's notion of entering the child's mind. Da, 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 da. When all I really want to say is, get the fuck out the building and go talk to the hood. The hood knows how to make this better. Pardon my language. And it's like, it it hurts. It hurts to it hurts to be perceived as radical to do what is right to do.
1: Yeah. It hurts to be ostracized
5: by the intellectual community. But knowing what has been glowingly apparent. And so I don't know, man. Like I just I my 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 hope, my prayer is that this moment, sociopolitically, where we're where we are where there's voice to the articulation of the concept of black lives mattering, where there's an understanding that those who've been called or chosen to to help us be safe, make us feel unsafe. That those who hold political power are children masked by title. That our children could not even stoop that low to be like in a world where the cloak is being pulled to reveal the hypocrisies in our society. That what you and I are articulating becomes more clear. It's my only hope and prayer.
0: And lastly, we have Larry McKenzie, an author, speaker, and six-time high school championship basketball coach in North Minneapolis. Shonda and Larry talked about the academic climate and psyche of students, the challenge of supporting both and achieving relationships and the creed Larry lives by. We're
1: sitting in a climate, an academic climate, a climate of discussion, of disparities, And what are we going to do with these uh, underperforming students, these marginalized communities, you know, and I've always been challenged by that language and what it does to the psyche of the young people and the communities that we're trying to support. How are you able, number one is, do you see that as a, as a, as a challenge? And then number two you know, just it's just striking the the importance of these more intimate relationships and helping to cut through that noise that says that you're not anything and you're from a place that's not about nothing.
6: Well, I, you know, one of the things that, uh, it's interesting you say that because um, I always tell the, the young men and, and Riley will probably share this with you. You know, one of the things that we talk about as I retreat. You know my grandmother, who God bless her soul, she lived to be 104 years old. And you know, um, at the time, I just thought this old lady was, you know, just boy, she used to just get on my nerves, right? And uh, as I got older, I discovered how smart and rich she was in wisdom. And so she would often say, "There's nothing new under the sun." So one of the discussions that I have with all of my young men, and and and, and what you just said is very real. I mean, um, uh. uh around the negativity and all the, all of that kind of narrative that they have to hear. But I always tell them that they're not the first or the last. And so no matter what your situation is, uh, you won't be the first kid that did not know their father. You won't be the first kid that grew up on on public assistance, none of those things. And so then you have to now make a choice. And, and, And honestly, I just say, You know, so all of those excuses that you've been making, I want you to go over in the corner, cry, get it out of your system, come back, and then let's get a plan about how we're going to change it. Because uh, I I just believe, uh, again, and so, you know, we talk about our creed, and with my creed, what I'm, you know, the essence of that is that let's stop making excuses and take control over your life. It's not about... It's not about who don't like you. It's not about you know uh, what teachers are saying or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, here, I, I, you know, you can be the first one in your family to graduate from college. You can be the 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 one to get a high school diploma. No matter what that thing of it is, it's possible. Is it going to be easy? I, I, as a African American man, I can tell you probably not. But it's not impossible. And and one of the stories that I really use now is I mean if you take Barack Obama, I mean didn't know his father, raised by his grandmother, raised on welfare, had all of the excuses in the world, right? But he didn't let that prohibit him from going on to become the most powerful man in the world. And he looked like us. And so those are the kind of things that I'm sharing um with with our young men. And and, and again, I think, I mean, it's funny because all of those folks that are, are the experts and educators, I mean, we're constantly hearing this talk and it's funny, just got off a call. I mean, you think about when we label schools as low performing schools and, you know, the achievement gap and all of those other kinds of things that kids have to listen to. And I guess I'm just one to say, uh, we're not going to believe it and we're going to prove it. And I've been blessed, um, through, through my through the efforts and the support of people like yourself and others in the community to put kids in a position to disprove that and and i think we've done that i mean when you look at you know uh our kids and i you know people talk about african-american boys and i tell people when i first got into coaching and i inherited my first team at uh minneapolis patrick henry i had more kids that was headed to prison than headed to college But I can tell people in 21 years, we've had 100% graduation, 100% of our kids gone on to a two-year or four-year school. One of the things that we want to help you do in this program is learn to set goals. And sometimes, I mean, you're going to come into roadblocks, but that won't keep you from achieving those goals. So that's a lot of what the creed is about, is something that we're constantly reminding the kids um, when... My, my former players that as you asked about when they call and they're having some challenges in their life, that's the first thing I tell them, let's go back to the creed. Who's yeah. in control? What's your part in this? And so let's start with you and then we'll figure the rest of it out. But that's the essence of the creed.
0: And there you have it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can always reach out to us on our website or social media channels at MPLS Foundation or to reach Shonda at Shonda S. Baker. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, Darlin Benjamin, and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. This is Sue Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.